The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, we're going to continue uh, talking about the outline of the gospel and uh, also about our evangelistic uh, efforts. I had a good opportunity uh, to share the gospel on the plane this past week with Jeremy Cooper. Uh, I didn't realize he wasn't a believer, and so we had a terrible time of shock. And finally I realized, no, I had nothing to do with that. He was a co-laborer with me. Uh, sitting next to him to his left was a, a man named Zach who um, is a Muslim uh, but who's raising his kids, teaching them both the Quran and the Bible. He wants to be fair and give them an equal chance to, you know. So that was interesting. Um, he, I think he prided himself on being very open-minded, very balanced, uh, willing to listen to anything. And so we talked to him probably most of the way from RDU to uh, O'Hare in uh, Chicago. So it was a good, long conversation. Um, his basic sticking points were the Trinity and the Incarnation, which I think is good. I mean, if you're going to have sticking points, those are the those are the deep mysteries of our faith. And so we talked uh, at length about that, um, about the the uh, basic idea of the of the uh, Trinity and about how Jesus can be fully God and fully man. Uh, incredible conversation. Uh, for me, the biggest challenge of evangelism is getting into a gospel conversation. I actually don't have much trouble once I'm in that conversation. But do you find that yourselves? So how do you do it? I mean, what, what, before we get into the content, how do you get into gospel conversations with people? Tom, what do you do to, to begin? A, I know you do that frequently. What do you do to get in gospel conversations with people? Sometimes I just ask them if they attend church. Okay. Or if they have spiritual background, some approach it family-wise sometimes. Yeah, I, I do the same. I think the, the church question, like, do you go to church? you have a church you attend? Brevard, how about you? I was waiting to ask about Oh, all right. <laughs> Never mind. But I knew you had something to share anyway. Go ahead. <laughs> Hi, Esther. How are you? Okay, go ahead. Uh, well, I've been doing this at you. Uh-huh. Give me a little table, and uh, it's already there. Chairs around it, students around the table. Bibles in the table, on the table, and just ask them if they got a Bible. Okay. And we're giving away several this way. Okay. And you can show them how to use the Bible. Don't start in, necessarily it wouldn't be bad, but start in New Testament, the life of Christ. Right. Okay. And, uh, that's one of the way we can do So it. give them a Bible and all that, Susan? I have an approach, but it's not very successful for me, but maybe it will be for other people. Okay. Well, share it with us. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, I just start a normal conversation, and then... Mm-hmm. Because God is such a part of my life, he, I will just say, well, the Lord uh, directed me or led me to do this. Just as I would try to do it spontaneously. As mm-hmm. I see the situation, I, I do feel like the Lord leads me to do certain things. Right. So I just try to be spontaneous and truthful about it. But mm-hmm. I must say it doesn't usually work. Yeah, I think I, I appreciate that. And just talking about how the Lord in general touches our lives can be there. But at some point, you have to have a kind of a bridge connection. And and um, a statement like, um, you know, I've come to the place in my life where a relationship with, with God through Jesus Christ is the most important part of my life. Have you ever come to a place where you've 
you know, come into a relationship with Christ or a relationship with God and tell me about it. And, and that way it's just direct. It's really straightforward. And in the end, probably the best approach, a more direct approach. Um, before that, though, a lot of times, um, and, and again, it's on this laminated card, um, you know, you're talking about interests. Just tell me about your life. And a lot of it depends on how long you have with them. Again, on the airplane, you might have a good, good long while, 90 minutes or whatever. Get into a conversation with them. Talk about their lives. Be a good listener. Pick up on it. If you can't find a route to a good uh, conversation uh, from a good conversation about their everyday life to God, then you don't understand how pervasive God is in this world. God relates to everything in their lives. You just have to listen to them for a while, get them to talk. Sooner or later, some problem or issue is going to bubble to the surface, whether it related to their job, their family, something, health, whatever. And, uh, you know, Leighton Ford said so much of evangelism, or at least beginning those conversations, is taking the, your finger and rubbing it around the inside of the cup to find the crack that sin has left. And, and you find it, and then you're able to apply the gospel in that situation. Any other thoughts on how to get in a gospel conversation? Cliff, well, I work outside, and I usually talk about the creation. Mm-hmm. For instance, like when the rains, the leaves turn up, and mm-hmm. I just try to you know, get that meat and how God created that. Okay. All right, picking up on creation, Andre. A lot of people like to talk about relationships and marriage, and so mm-hmm. a good question is, do you think God picks your wife or you pick your wife? Okay. And with that, the person, usually the person say yes, they say God, and then you ask them how God's in their life and all that stuff. And, That's great. Uh, that's a whole a whole genre of approach, which is the juicy topic approach. Can be a little dif- difficult, but uh, boy, do you see the stuff that happened? Whatever. What do you think about that? And they get going. And I'll tell you, most juicy topics, it's a shortcut to the gospel. Uh, all right, go ahead. I kind of got to leave me since I'm new to town. I say, you know, I'm pretty new to town. They always ask what for, and I say, well, I'm in seminary. There you go. Yeah, for me it's easy. So what do you do for a living? You know, it's like, well, you know. Yeah, it's always funny to watch the reaction. Oh, okay, pastor. So, hmm, see ya. But uh, Jack, yeah. A lot of times it depends on where you are. Uh, when in the mission trips that we were doing to the Caribbean, uh, 25 years, uh, in a culture where people have heard of Jesus Christ and all, like mm-hmm. you say, you, you just start with any conversation. Hi, my name is so and so. So you live here, or you live close by, or something, and then you just point me because you're on a mission trip, you don't have a whole lot of time. Yeah. I think that's that's one very good approach. Um, it's very similar to what Jesus does in John 3 with Nicodemus. You remember how Nicodemus comes to him and he says, Teacher, we know that you're a man sent from God, for no one could do the miracles you were doing if God were not with him. Remember how Jesus answered that? Total non sequitur. It's like the greatest non sequitur ever. He said, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. I mean, that's a non sequitur, but he said, Isn't that why you're here? So let's just get to it. All right? And, and I, to me, I think the direct approach sometimes can be the best approach. Uh, Jesus says directly, you must be born again. 
All right, and so there's a there's a directness uh, there too. I, friends, I just think you need to know there's a lot of different r- ways to get into a gospel conversation, not just one approach. The EE approach, evangelism explosion, asks this key question: If you were to die tonight and you were to stand before God and He were to ask you, "Why should I let you into heaven?" What would you say? Uh, that's uh, one approach that evangelism explosion has used. Any other comments, Susan? This is a question. Do you find you sometimes have to? get over your own personal reaction to the individual before you approach them, or have you dealt with that before you get into the... What do you mean by that, my own... Well, let's say I think of a Muslim woman that is near me who has on the veil and Mm -hmm. the whole black business, and, you know, so I have kind of a reaction to that, an emotional reaction, and before I even... I have to deal with before I can... Yeah. I mean, do you deal with that before you go out? Well, yeah... I, I guess so. I, I mean, let's face it. People are complex. They're difficult. Uh, their sin leaves them in, in interesting places. Um, and the further they are from you, uh, socioeconomically, uh, racially, culturally, the more you might have a reaction like that, and it's hard to reach out. But keep in mind um, the motivation of Jesus. You know, you think about it this way. In Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus saw the crowds, that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, he had compassion on them. And he said, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. There's a, a movement of compassion. So I think, Susan, and, and for all of us, I think we have to develop a heart of compassion to see people in the eternal perspective. Sometimes it, it's just a matter of imagining what it will be like for that individual to stand before God on Judgment Day. Just picture them standing there without any defense, without any atoning sacrifice, uh, in which Christ is their accuser and their judge, not their savior. Uh, what a terrifying thing. And at that point, you can quickly get over any feelings you may have about that person, whatever clothing they're wear- wearing or what their aroma is, and realize none of that matters. What matters is they will stand before God someday soon. Any other thoughts on getting in a gospel conversation? I got a yes, sir. The Da Vinci Code. Okay. Everybody's talking about that. They're on it right now. Of course, Mel, Mel Gibson is out. All right, we're done with passion. Okay, that's out, and we're on to the next one. So, yeah. Four o'clock today, my wonderful neighbor next door is a Mormon. And uh, so I asked her, I said, uh, I was taking out the garbage. By the way, make a note of that. (laughs) (laughs) And I asked her, I said, what is the Mormon church thinking about this Da Vinci Code? She said, well, it really doesn't bother us one way or another, but it's really bothering the Catholics. Yeah. Uh And she said, I read the book. I said, well, I heard a lecture by a New Testament scholar Monday night bringing out the points that need to be brought out. She said, well, I read the book. She said, I'd like to read that. Wow. So there's some openness there. Go ahead, John. I was going to say, in my particular area, I'm dealing with a group of doctors on a regular basis, and some of them are actually very hostile to the gospel. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I found very helpful is to make it very clear to them that I respect them mm-hmm. where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. And I try to ask them questions to understand. Yeah. And I found that when you're in kind of a long-term situation like that versus sort of an on-the-bus situation, Right. It's really good to spend a lot of time asking questions and listening. Yeah. Showing respect. That's yeah, I think I think you can go a long way with that. Jesus was a great question asker, um, tremendous question asker. Um, I think you have to be really interested in their lives and be a good listener. And and frankly, the longer that goes on, if you have enough time, the more help you have because you really know at that point where you're where they're coming from. You know, the last thing I want to do by giving you an outline like this, God, Man, Christ response, is to make you an evangelism machine. Okay, you want to talk to an evangelism machine, talk to a Jehovah's Witness. It's always the same. I mean, they must all be reading the same training manuals and all that. I feel like I'm talking to a tape recorder. 
I really do. And when I want to say something, I push stop and I say whatever it is I want to say and, and they'll let me go for a while. And then when my time is done, I push play and we begin right at that point of the outline and we keep right on going like a machine. There's no connection whatsoever. It's so mechanical. Uh, heaven forbid that this should, you know, I'm giving you with God, man, Christ response, basic elements of the gospel that you should weave in in an artful way under the inspiration of the spirit, not something you memorize and you steamroll somebody right through. Memorize it, yes, but understand it's never going to go exactly this way. It's There's always going to be, you know, a kind of a rearranging. But you do need to talk about God. You do need to talk about about human sin you really need to talk about christ and what he accomplished and you need to bring them to a decision so i think it's valid to have this four-part outline in your head but don't make it like a machine have you ever talked to somebody like that that's you know uh, really just find a good jehovah's witness who will witness to you and you ought to i think you ought to do that just as a ministry to your neighborhood suck up their time hours and hours with your local jehovah's witness you know and they're like oh my goodness the whole afternoon's gone well at least i spent it with you maybe you'll become a jehovah's witness you're like not likely but at least none of my neighbors will either so i mean that could be a good ministry but uh joyce anybody else provide this is a rather ideal situation but in related to the situation that we have in the Well, that's a good point. And obviously, the better relationship you have with somebody, the more of that you can share. But you know something? Even there, there's a challenge. Think about family members who are not Christians. You're going to find yourself on an average Saturday afternoon, and the burden's on you to bring it up again. And so you have to find some way to bring up that topic. You get in that conversation. Even though you know each other very, very well, it's still the burden's on you to bring the topic to something spiritual because they're not going to do it. Yeah, go ahead. Um, uh, the verse, it's the goodness of God that leads to salvation. Mm-hmm. Right. We're living, and often I just share with them what God has done in my life and how awesome, mm-hmm. even with my kids. And so it's it's great because I do get them right. talking, and a lot of times it's not an offensive thing because mm-hmm. I'm talking about family or myself. So it's a way to get in and hopefully have a time to pray that the Lord will open the door a little wider for a deeper conversation. Well, that's a very good point. You know, it says in Matthew 5 that you should let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. Well, you could say that that's just that they'll glorify God for your good deeds, but it might be just disconnected. Because of your good deeds, you get to share the gospel that's in between. And as a result of that, then they'll glorify God in heaven. All right? Because it's really only by being transformed by the gospel that anybody's going to glorify God in heaven anyway, uh, or the heavenly Father. And so for me, good deeds then become a platform for sharing the gospel. You know, when you're out there ministering, isn't that, isn't that the way it was with Jesus? Didn't he minister to people's needs? Didn't he heal people and do all that? So it's there. But we should not minimize the contact evangelism either because you see Jesus doing that with the woman at the well uh, where he's striking up a conversation. He hasn't done anything for her. As a matter of fact, he asked her to do something for him. So the good deed was done the other way, but all he cares about is getting that conversation to be able to share with him. Christy. When I was in the hospital um, after Daphne was born, the people who worked there who came to my room every day, you know, 
many times a day. Over four days, mm-hmm. I saw many of the people, um, you know, more than once, sometimes two or three times. And I don't know if it's just because the profession they chose is they desire to help, but they're very compassionate, very needy people. You know, they, they have that makeup. But um, I just felt like the Lord brought so many opportunities as they have. There were, um, in a room next to me, there was a woman who, you know, you think when somebody has a baby, what a delightful situation that is. Mm-hmm. But the person in the next room to me, there was lots of yelling and screaming, well, and it was mm-hmm. just heartbreaking as they were going through that and the nurses were trying to deal with it and um, and yet I just thank the Lord for the housekeeping staff that came in and they would talk to you and, and they, you know, sweep the floor, make your bed, whatever, and they could take their time and and most of us will be in the hospital either with a loved one or whatever that just to see these people as people who if they don't know the Lord, need the Lord yeah. it's just a, a great place because they're able to talk to you about your situation they're there to help you and if it helps you to talk about your relationship with the lord (laughs) all right there you go i like that Uh, i don't i don't mean i'm not in any way trying to embarrass but the other day christy had a flat tire and she called me and so i went out to help her but when i got there there was a man there who was uh, helping her already he came by in a pickup truck and was just trying to help and uh to me that was a witnessing situation who was doing the good thing for who it didn't matter to me what matters is our lives intersected all right. He was helping me and helping me a lot, actually. Um, and I appreciated that. Uh, and I asked him about his spiritual life. And turns out he's bringing his kids to a church, but he's not attending himself and hasn't in a while. We didn't have a lot of time to talk. But uh, again, basically, it's just your life is intersecting with that of another non-Christian. And, and that's what you're looking for. Basically, a lot of our ministries to people's bodies, to their needs, is to give us a moment of intersection so that we can know them and share the gospel with them. That's our desire. Uh, that's our ultimate goal. Any other comments before we get into our content? Tonight? All right, we're going to be looking at the third part of the outline, and that is the Christ section. So you've got that in the doctrinal instruction that says outline points, God's fourth title, the Savior. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about save from what? Sin, of course. We're going to talk about Jesus' supernatural life, his substitutionary death, his saving resurrection, and salvation gifts. Uh, the bottom line that we're going to get in the Christ section is you have some content you have to communicate about Christ or you're not sharing the gospel. You know, that is essential to the gospel. You've got to share things about Jesus, and that's what we're going to talk about. Well, what things? What this outline does is try to zero in on four categories of things that you really need to share when you're sharing the gospel. You need to talk about his life, his supernatural life, namely the fact that he is the God-man, the incarnation. You don't need to use that the words, but you need to talk about how he's unique from anyone that's ever lived. He's not just a prophet or a teacher. He was God in the flesh. You need to talk about that. You need to talk about his miracles, his uh, miraculous life. We'll talk about why you need to talk about that. I'm not saying if you didn't mention the miracles, somebody can't come to Christ. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if you're witnessing to somebody and you want to get across why Jesus is the Savior, you'll find in the New Testament how important those miracles are. Uh, we'll talk about that. And then Jesus' sinless life as well. Then we'll talk about his substitutionary death. Obviously, that's essentially you've got to preach the cross. You've got to explain the cross of Jesus Christ, how his death uh, pays for our sins. Talk about his resurrection. Every, every New Testament, um, or sorry, every 
gospel proclamation in the book of Acts refers to the resurrection. Interestingly, they don't all refer to the cross or the death of Christ, but they almost all of them, as far as I, I did some research, they almost all refer to the resurrection. And so I think that's really fascinating how important it is to mention the resurrection. And then what Jesus is really offering, total forgiveness of sins and eternal life. So let's dig in God's fourth uh, title, Savior. We've seen that God is a creator and king and judge. We've also seen that man is created, rebellious, and under judgment. And this immediately leads to the Christ section, the outline, and to God's fourth title, and that is Savior. Savior. Man is sinful and under a death penalty, which we cannot pay. Therefore, we are desperately in need of a Savior, and only God himself can be that Savior. Thus, God sent Jesus Christ into the world, God in human flesh, to pay our death penalty. Our first scripture memory verse makes three of these titles clear, leaving out creator. Doesn't mean he's not creator just because Isaiah 33:22 doesn't mention it, but it's just a great verse. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. All right. Boy, I tell you, if you ever find a verse that lines up better with the gospel outline than that one, I mean, let me know what it is. But that just lists all of these titles for God. This is what he does. Now, just as God is central in his other offices, so he is central in our salvation salvation yes i'm sorry we want to save ourselves and in our pride we think we can it is important that we let people know that god is our savior you can't save yourself it's impossible for you to save yourself in our pride we think we can the basic message of the gospel is we absolutely positively cannot save ourselves and god must do it himself or it will not be done isaiah verse makes god the center in all four offices now humanity may ask save from what do you think that's ever going to happen Saved from what? What do I need to be saved from? Well, you should have already covered that in the man section. Okay, I hope you do. I mean, in the lawgiver section, you're going to be giving them the ten and the two, right? The ten commandments and the two great commandments. You ought to memorize, I keep saying this, you ought to memorize a basic outline of the ten commandments. It's not that hard. If you look at it, it's on this, uh, on this sheet that I gave you before. You should memorize the ten commandments. You should just do it anyway so you're not embarrassed when your kid's Sunday school teachers say, well, they know the ten. Go ahead. Tell us what the Ten Commandments are. And then you'll be so embarrassed. You know, you've been a Christian for 30 years and you can't tell what the Ten Commandments are. You ought to be able to do it. All right. And then the two great commandments. So uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. The ten and the two leaves no ri- wiggle room for anybody on the face of the earth. Under the skillful handling of an evangelist, everybody's left a sinner with the ten and the two. And so therefore, they ought to know very well what they need salvation from. Save from sin. And so that's what we're looking at. Matthew 121, Jesus is our Savior. Um, in Matthew 121, it says, You'll give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. I'm skipping things, aren't I? All right. Uh, we are rebellious from the law. This is why I usually don't do fill-in-the-blank things. See, because then I don't have freedom to skip things. All right. Um, including the negative, thou shalt not, so the Ten Commandments, and even the more difficult positive, thou shalt, so the two great commandments. That gets everybody, the negative and the positive. Therefore, uh, we deserve the penalty of eternal death, Romans 6.23. All right, our next memory verse makes it clear who the Savior from sin is. It's none other than Jesus of Nazareth, Matthew 1.21. You will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The word because is lost to us in the English language, but it's not lost to the Hebrew speakers. They knew what Jesus meant. Salvation is from Yahweh. That's what it means. Jesus' name means salvation comes from the Lord. So that's that's what his name means. Salvation from sin. He will save his people from their sins. Matthew 121 is a good verse because it gives us directly the answer to the question, save from what? What do I need to be saved from? You need to be saved from your sins. 
All right? This makes it clear what we are saved from as well as who will do the saving, Jesus. The statement was made by the angel to Joseph as the angel commended, sorry, commanded uh, that Joseph should take Mary as his wife uh, despite her pregnancy. What is not clear to us is the significance of Jesus' name itself. He will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Obviously, in the words of the modern spiritual song, there is something about that name. The name literally means salvation is from the Lord, or the Lord is salvation. These two verses already establish the deity of Christ as well as his humanity. We'll be even more clear about those, even clearer about those doctrines next. Now let's talk about Jesus' supernatural life. No one can be saved without knowing something of the biography of Jesus. Why is that important? Why is it that, that somebody must know the biography of Jesus, at least at some level, in order to be saved and go to heaven? You got to know him. Okay? You got to know him in order to do what? Okay, in order to believe on him. The key uh, concept here is Romans chapter 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How can they call on the one they have not believed in? And here's the next key link. How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? Well, they have to hear about him, right? You can't believe in someone you've never heard of. That's the logic of the the verse in Romans 10, 13 to 15. And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? That's your job. You need to tell them who Jesus is. You need to give them the biography of Jesus. And my goodness, this should be a delight to you. You should really enjoy talking about Jesus's life. This is a great delight. And again, this is the value, in my opinion, of memorizing scripture. Because you can, with great vivid detail, describe various miracles. You can describe the, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. You can talk about details like remove the stone and, and what they say and all that. Bring, bring them right into that situation. Or the time that Jesus was asleep in the boat and the, the waves are crashing over and Jesus gets up and, and says, peace be still, and immediately the storm is stilled. You can just talk about these miracles, but you need to give them the biography of Jesus. It's essential. Paul made that clear in Romans 10:14. How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? It is for this very reason that we have four biographies of Jesus Christ, which are called the Gospels the Gospels, the facts of Jesus' physical life on earth, his supernatural birth, his amazing words, his miraculous deeds are essential to our gospel. They're not extra. They have to know who Jesus was. And you know what's so amazing? I, I've, I've done ministry right here in the inner city and I've, I've talked to an eight-year-old inner city kid didn't know anything about Jesus, nothing. Even when it was around Christmas time and I was talking about the reason for Christmas and what we celebrate, birth of Jesus, who? It was incredible. He had no knowledge. Well, you're not born with, as part of original equipment, knowledge about Jesus. Someone has to come and tell you about Jesus. Usually at age eight, it's parents, Sunday school teachers, family that have shared already. But this child had none of that. So he had no knowledge of Jesus. You have to share the biography. It's essential to the gospel. History matters to Christianity. This is so true that Paul said, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. Liberal Christianity denies the importance of objective historical fact. The New Testament, however, is built on it. All right? It is for this very reason that you always see the apostles in Acts preaching the facts of Christ's life. If you look at what Peter does in Acts 10 with Cornelius as an example. We also must get these facts across. I believe an inductive Bible study in which we go through some of the gospel accounts of Jesus' words and deeds. That's the best form of evangelism. I'm doing that right now with a guy that I met. And we're just going through the gospel of Mark. 
We're just getting the basic ideas. The first uh, leg, it's in Christianity Explained. That's the name of the uh, Bible study we're using in the Gospel of Mark. But the first leg is uh, Jesus, the Son of God. It's like a three-legged stool. It was four-legged, but anyway. Three-legged stool, okay? Jesus, the Son of God. And we talk about his authority, his authority to drive out demons, his authority to still the storm, his authority over sickness and death, his authority uh, to, to forgive sins, his authority to call people to follow him, the authority of Jesus because he is the Son of God. So we talk about that. The second uh, leg is Jesus' death on the cross. The third is resurrection. Those are the basic facts of the life of Christ, uh, who he was. All right. The, the following three headings are sufficient for our outline, but a fuller treatment, include his te- including his teaching, would be ideal. All right. First, we start with the idea of Jesus as God-man. Remember I told you that Jeremy and I ran into that Muslim man. He said he had two basic problems with Christianity. Uh, they both focus on Christ. It's the Trinity and the Incarnation. All right, well, we wouldn't be wrestling with the Trinity if it weren't for Jesus. Do you understand that? They weren't wrestling with the Trinity before Jesus was born. All right, in the Old Testament, there's God. There is one God and only one God and is he exalted, etc. There's some indications. Let us make man in our image and all that. And, and so there's some indications concerning the Trinity, but but they're, they're, they're just background, and they missed it. I mean, until Jesus was born, it was not there. It wasn't like we're waiting for the one who will come, who will explain the Trinity to us. They, they were not waiting for it. It's when Jesus was born, and then things were said about him that were said about no other man, like by the angel. Um, he was the son of God and the son of David, both. So he's God-man. It's focused on Christ. So we're starting with this idea of Jesus as God-man. John 1:14. the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We must establish the deity of Christ without question. Christ was God in the flesh. John 1.14 establishes that fact if we make it clear that the word is Jesus of Nazareth, which John's gospel does, in fact, make clear. As a matter of fact, the navigators that do the topical memory system, they give you John 1.1.14 on the same card. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 1.14, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, etc. So there's a clear link. Jesus is the word. The word became flesh. So the word was God. The deity of Christ is really the central theme of John's gospel. It really is. And by the way, that's where you spend your time with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Not just John 1.1. 1, 1. All the way through, friends. You know how many I am statements there are in John's gospel? Something like 20. Over 20 I am statements. They're all over the place, especially in the Greek. It's very clear. All right, this doctrine, the deity of Christ, is a mystery, and we cannot plumb the depths of it, but it is essential to the gospel. Let me stop right there. Why is it important that the people you're witnessing to understand the deity of Jesus of Nazareth? Why is that essential to the gospel? Well, if he's not deity, then he cannot go to God. Okay. All right. Can't represent us to God. Okay not deity then i don't think he'd have any better shot of living a sinless life than we would so okay if he could have lived a sinless life without being deity then maybe we could without his salvation okay or if he couldn't have then he's not a perfect sacrifice right and let's zero in on the idea of a sacrifice for whom is jesus offering his life as a sacrifice for whom sins of the world right that's big job how can one human being do that job if he's just a human being how can one human being offer his life in the place of millions of people. There's not an equal value there, do you see? But if he is, in fact, an infinite being, if he is God who's doing that, then everything gets multiplied by infinity, you see? And his blood is sufficient for the sins of the entire world. 
And so the deity of Christ really ends up being very important. It's important and essential. It's also important because he claimed it. And if he claims to be God and he's not God, as C.S. Lewis said, we ought not pay attention to him because he's insane or a liar, right? But if he is, in fact, who he claimed to be, then everything makes sense. So the deity of Christ is important. It's essential. Secondly, we want to talk about the, the miracles of Jesus, his miraculous life. In Matthew 11:5, the blind receive, receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Uh, these are the miracles that Jesus did. You remember the context there. John the Baptist was wondering about Jesus. <laughs> are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? That's a pretty devastating question coming from John the Baptist. He's the one, I have seen and I testify that he is the Christ. You know, he says that in John 1. Well, what happened in Matthew 11? Well, he's a human being. He was in prison. He was depressed, discouraged. He had lost perspective. And so he sends messengers saying, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? And what does Jesus give the messengers? He gives them the miracles. He said, look at the miracles. He does the same thing in John's gospel. At least believe on the evidence of the signs themselves. At the end of John's gospel, uh, take a minute, go, look in your Bibles at John chapter 20. John chapter 20, this is uh, very, very clear. Verse 30 and 31, I think it is. Yeah. Somebody read that for us, John 20, 30, and 31. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So look at verse 31, and it says, but these have been written, or these are written. These what? Miracles. These signs. Well, which signs? The ones that John recorded in his, uh, in his gospel. Well, what were they? Well, there were seven of them in John's gospel. He zeroes in on seven feeding the 5,000, walking on water, the uh, healing of the man born blind, the raising of Lazarus, the healing of the, of the royal official son in John 4. Um, these are amazing signs, seven of them all together. And he says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs which are not recorded in this book. And there are, by the way, many, many. Remember that Jesus did mass healings. In other words, huge communities, all the whole region of Galilee and the Jordan went to see Jesus and he healed them all. There are a number of summary statements like that. How many miracles is that? Who knows? You know, John 9, the whole chapter is devoted to one man and his own miracle, right? So if you told everybody's story fully, John says later, the, the world couldn't hold all the books that would be written. All right, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written. Why? That you may believe. What does that tell you about the miracles? They're signs and they are the ground of what? The ground of faith. Is faith important? Everybody nod. Yes, faith is really important. It's what you're going for as an evangelist. You want them to believe in Jesus and Jesus is giving them the miracles. You say, is he really giving them the miracles? Well, he's giving them the miracle accounts. And frankly, if they don't believe the scripture, they will never believe even if someone rises from the dead. He said that openly. They must believe from scripture. And from scripture, there's enough. If they will not believe scripture, they will not be saved. It's really that simple. So they must believe the scriptural accounts of the miracles. But your job as the evangelist is to give them to them. Just like John's job was to give them to the people who would read his gospel. It was his job to give them the miracles, to write about them. Well, we don't need to write them. They're already written. These have been written. 
But it's your job to quote them. Tell them the stories about the man born blind. Tell them the story about Lazarus dead in the tomb for four days. Tell them about Jairus' daughter. Tell them about the woman who had the flow of blood. You choose your own favorite miracles. Choose three or four and get really good at telling those stories, okay? Uh, ones that you're really good at. Walking on water, whatever you want. The cursing of the fig tree may not be your first choice, but something. I mean, some of the miracles that show his great power. All right, talk about the miracles. Jesus' miracles are further proof of his deity, and they are a constant focal point of apostolic preaching. See Acts again. This verse gives a good list of the mighty works that Jesus did. That's Matthew 11:5. Jesus himself puts a great deal of emphasis on the miracles as a basis of faith. In John 10:25, he says, The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. John 10:38, he says, Believe the miracles. We should speak about Jesus' amazing powers to those we are evangelizing. I would think this would make evangelism enjoyable. And, and this is, it was really in meditating on this theme, namely how we should be sharing the miracle stories, that showed me that evangelism itself, apart from its effectiveness in bringing people to Christ, evangelism itself glorifies God because it's a form of worship. You are just celebrating the greatness of Christ. And if this poor person, this poor sinner doesn't come along and celebrate with you, then they're the loser. But you can celebrate anyway. Isn't Jesus a great, great God that he could do these kinds of things? Isn't he great that he could walk on the water and feed 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish? You weigh those five loaves and you weigh the 12 baskets of broken pieces that were left over. Some matter was created. Where did it come from? You know, I mean, that's unnatural. You know what I'm saying? He creates matter out of nothing. We could go on and on about the miracles. Anyway, I mean, the great signs and wonders of Jesus were given so that we could know that he was our savior. They identified him, these miracles. John never did any miracles, but Jesus did all these great signs. Lazarus' resurrection is my favorite as is stilling the storm, the feeding the 5,000. Use them liberally. I don't mean that that way. Use them freely. You know what I'm saying? Use them really believing that they happen. You know what I mean. Okay, anyway. Uh, Thirdly, sinless. Jesus was sinless, 1 Peter 2.22. He committed no sin, nor is any deceit found in his mouth. That's a plain statement of Jesus' sinlessness. As a matter of fact, I don't think you'll find a plainer one in the entire Bible. He committed no sin. That does it for me, okay? He's a sinless being. And also in Hebrews 4, it says, yet was without sin. Jesus' sinless perfection is essential to his fitness to be our substitute on the cross. That's a heavy sentence, isn't it? What do I mean by that? Jesus' sinless perfection is essential to his fitness for being our substitute on the cross. Why is that, Landis? Why does he have to be sinless in order to be your substitute and mine? It has to be an unblemished lamb. It has to fulfill the type, you know, the unblemished lamb. The, um, lamb slain from the foundation of the world could only be Christ. And that's spoken of in Revelation. Okay. Yeah, he has to be the lamb slain, the foundation of the world. He has to be sinless. And the book of Hebrews points out a very clear reason. The Old Testament priests were constantly needing to offer sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. You see how Jesus, if he has to offer sacrifice for his own sin, cannot be our substitute? He must be sinless, and he was. He was sinless. The more you meditate on that, the more amazing it is. Never once disrespected his parents, never once disobeyed them, never once disobeyed God. The ten and the two, he did it perfectly, absolutely perfectly. And if you have enough time, it's beneficial to talk about it. Jesus perfectly obeyed all those ten commandments that we talked about. He perfectly loved God. He perfectly loved his neighbor. And you know why that's important? Because that is the perfect righteousness you can stand in on Judgment Day. And anything less than that, you won't survive. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. That's right. 
Sometimes theologians use the word his active righteousness. There's an active, active righteousness. Jesus went out and did it. He went out and won it. You know, and you know, so many of the negative things, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. Um, Jesus also did all the you shalls, you know, love your neighbors yourself. I mean, just an amazing thing. So that's beautiful. Not just innocence, but his perfect righteousness. Okay, because Jesus um, had no sin of his own, he could not be said to be punished for himself on the cross. This verse also shows that Jesus lived the kind of life we're supposed to lead in the kingdom of God and that we will lead when our salvation is completed in heaven. Perfect, joyful obedience to our king. All right, next we need to talk about Jesus' substitutionary death. Substitution is the core of the gospel message. Yet very few evangelical presentations of the gospel seem to focus on it or even mention it. Isn't that amazing? You get your average evangelical tract and they will not mention substitution in any way. It's really quite shocking. We need to mention substitution. It's the core, the beating heart of the gospel. It's the center of it. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see the exchange? He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. If that does not happen, I have no chance on on judgment day for salvation. None. All right? Jesus took our place. His suffering is what we deserved. His experience of the wrath of God was ours. His death was our death penalty. If this is not made clear, then our hearers have not understood the gospel. Did you hear that? They must understand this exchange. First Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. This verse makes it clear. Peter states that Christ bore our sins. He carried them on himself. This is the language of Isaiah 53.6. You want to, I mean, the most saturated chapter on substitution is Isaiah 53. You know, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the substitution, the laying on our sins on him. And I was witnessing to somebody once and I was talking about the transfer of guilt, that guilt can be taken off us and put on, on a substitute, put on Christ. And he said, how can you do that? Well, my answer to that is this, twofold. First of all, I don't have any idea. But second of all, if it can't, I have no hope of salvation. I must have this exchange, this transfer. I must have it removed from me. Because other than that, I must pay it myself. I will be guilty in it on judgment day. So thank God it can be. Thank God that the exchange can be made, even if we don't fully understand why or how. There really is no legal precedent it really someone is unjust to punish somebody who didn't commit a crime, even if they're willing to, to do it. The, the law won't permit it. Only God can make this exchange. And it's done in the spiritual realm in a spiritual way that we really don't understand. But it is the foundation of our hope, this idea of substitution. Okay, so he carried our sins, Isaiah 53, 6. Um, the verse establishes the twofold nature of Christ's suffering and death. It was both a spiritual death in the sense that Christ stood under the wrath of God for us and a literal physical death. The sacrifice was accomplished in space and time with nails driven through his arms into the wood. All right, it really happened. He really died. He really shed his blood. But there was also a spiritual side to it that we cannot see. Mel Gibson couldn't film it. You can't show it. In in every respect, Jesus' death physically looked like that of the two guys crucified with him. Physically, there, there really was no difference, except Jesus died sooner than they did, okay? So if anything, it seemed easier for him than the other two. But we know it was infinitely harder because there was a spiritual aspect. Jesus was drinking the cup in the garden. Remember, he didn't want to drink the cup? I believe that cup was the wrath of God. 
And so at a, in a spiritual level, how are you going to film that? It's one of my big problems with the Passion movie because you can't show the spiritual side. There's no technique, cinematographic technique. How, how do you say that? How do you say that? Cinematography. There's no movie technique to show the wrath of God. You can't. It must be preached. You just explain it. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is an incredibly important verse, isn't it? If I can just, um, just stop for a minute and tell you that this idea of the transfer of guilt and the corresponding idea of what's called the imputation or the transfer of righteousness to us is under great attack right now. It's directly being attacked so that people like John Piper and R.C. Sproul and others are writing books defending imputation. They're defending the substitution of Christ. I tell you that the gospel itself is being questioned by this. The idea is that there's a new way of looking at righteousness. It's a community righteousness. It's a Jewish righteousness. It's a, it's a kind of a, 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 a faithfulness, etc., to the laws of God and all that. That is false. As usual, it takes an element or an aspect of the truth and makes it the whole truth. That's what happens all the time. But we must have this imputation, this substitution. We must have the exchange. We must have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. It's not enough just for our sins to be taken from us. Then we're left morally neutral. God will be with us in our perfect state. We must be righteousness. We must be perfectly righteous. And so we are. That's the transfer. So God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This verse also makes clear the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. The cross represents the transfer of guilt from us sinners to Christ and of righteousness from Christ to us sinners. How can guilt be transferred to a substitute, they may ask. This is a mystery, but it was at the center of the animal sacrificial system that God established in the Old Covenant. The priest would put his hands on on the animal and confess the sins of Israel onto its head. You look it up. Leviticus 16.21, it says he takes the sins and puts them onto the goat. In that case, the goat doesn't die. It's a scapegoat, and it travels a long distance away from the people. It doesn't matter, though, because in every other case, the priest puts his hands on the head, and then in those cases, those animals do die. So what that verse explains is what is the significance of the putting of the hands on the head? It symbolizes transfer. That's what's going on. Guilt being transferred to the substitute. In the Old Covenant, friends, it was merely a symbol, a shadow of the reality. It didn't really happen. I say to you that no transfer really occurred when that priest put his hands on the goat. But it symbolized a genuine transfer that did happen. Where did David sin with Bathsheba? What happened to that? How did that get transferred? Well, it got transferred in the mind of God ahead a thousand years to Jesus at Calvary so that David's sin was paid for ahead of time by Jesus, you see. That's all explained in Romans 3. God demonstrates his justice because in his forbearance, he'd left the sins before committed beforehand unpunished. Well, they were punished. They were punished at the cross. But it's a transfer there. Do you understand what I'm saying? Are you ready to explain this? You think, well, this is deep theology. Well, yeah, it's the gospel. It's theology. You must explain a transfer. Think of illustrations. Use, use a hat, all right, or a coat, all right? See, but if you're going to use the coat illustration, make sure that yours is the nasty, sinful coat and theirs is the beautiful, nice coat. Don't want to insult their coat, okay? Don't want to tick them off. Say, I think your coat is a beautiful coat. Your coat will represent the righteousness of Christ. And my coat, my nasty, dirty coat, will represent sin, okay? And then you exchange it. I've actually changed coats with people before. They were hoping we wouldn't change back because actually my coat was nicer than theirs at that particular moment. But it's a picture of transfer. We get Christ's righteousness. He gets our sin. Any questions about this?
Why am I belaboring this? Because this is the heart of the gospel. Yes, go ahead. What form does the attack on imputation take? So I'll recognize it. The new perspective of Paul. Okay, the new, it's called new perspective. And it's, uh, it's deadly. All right, any, anything, anything that attacks imputation, anything that it attacks, uh, you know, I'll tell you what, anytime you get, hey, we've got a new way of looking at Paul. Martin Luther was wrong. All those other guys were wrong. This is a whole new way. Be suspicious. Be suspicious. Because what happens so often is you're taking, the reason it gets traction is because there is some truth to it. This is the way it always is. But remember what J.I. Packer said, par, uh, partial truth lifted up as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. Okay? And basically, if you are going to deny imputation, you have denied the gospel. And some of them do. Not all of them do, but some of them deny imputation. Yeah? Are they denying that you need the imputation altogether, or are they replacing them with something else? Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I, I think you end up with works righteousness. You end up with the need to be blameless and upright like a, a Zechariah was or whatever. You know, basically, it's kind of the Jewish way of salvation apart from Christ. You know, it's law-abiding as as you can, and, and then the imputation is not needed at that point. But again, didn't Paul deal with this in Galatians? If salvation could come by the law, then Christ died for nothing. Why do we need Jesus dying if you can earn your own salvation by legal obedience? It's impossible. All right, let's keep going. Three great lessons of the Old Testament sacrificial system we've talked about. I'm not going to go into it right now. Substitutionary atonement was the essence of the Old Testament, and it's also the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gets our sin and punishment. We get his righteousness uh, for judgment day. That is the cross. That's what's going on. Okay. All right, finally, Jesus' saving resurrection. As we said above, without the resurrection, we would have no salvation. Jesus' resurrection is the only answer to the universal problem of death. Our memory verse establishes a historical fact of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5. For what I received, I also passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. This establishes the factual you know, evidence. Or the, this establishes the fact of the physical resurrection of Christ. The whole chapter is about it. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. It establishes it as essential to Christianity. You must have the resurrection. But right here at the beginning, it establishes that it really happened. I also like to point out to my hearers that Jesus won his resurrection victory to give it to us. In John 14:19, Jesus said, Because I live, you also will live. Isn't that wonderful? How generous is Jesus? How generous! He goes and wins the victory and gives all the spoils to us by faith. We get the resurrection victory. We get to live forever and ever. And it says in another place, having died, death no longer has mastery over him. Death cannot conquer him again. And so we will live forever. If Jesus can be killed a second time, then so can we. But it will not happen. We will live forever and ever. Jesus gives us his resurrection victory. Jesus said in John 11, 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. All right, well, what does Jesus then offer to us? What is he offering to the person you're sharing the gospel with? You've talked about Jesus, his person, his, he is God-man. He, is, uh, uh, he did miracles. He's sinless. Um, you talked about his substitutionary death. You talked about his, his resurrection. What is it you, um, what is it you get by believing in Jesus? Well, I'm going to focus on two things, total forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We want to sum up Jesus' accomplishments. These are the incredible gifts he offers to us to be, who believe in him. There are so many that one quick accounting could never do it justice. 
Rather, we want to focus on two. The negative removed, the positive given. Do you hear that? We've got negative thing removed. We were under a death penalty. We were under the wrath of God. Our, our sins were storing up wrath against ourselves for the day of God's judgment when his righteous judgment will be revealed. That's Romans 2. Can you imagine that? The non-Christian every single day is storing up wrath against himself. In Christ, he is offering to remove all of that forever. Past, present, and future, all of our sins forgiven. The forgiveness of sins, how sweet is that? The negative is removed. The positive is given. All right, so through Christ's death, every sin we've ever committed or ever will commit has been completely forgiven if we believe the gospel. I like to stress that this means the death penalty has been paid completely. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. Secondly, we get a positive given, eternal life. The free gift of a whole new relationship with God through faith in Christ. This will include, as we make plain in the response section, submitting to God as our creator, our king, and our lawgiver, and our judge. Uh, it will also include the power to walk in newness of life. And it will ultimately include an eternity in face-to-face loving fellowship with God in heaven. All of this is a free gift of God's grace. In Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, of course, in other places, in John 17, it tells us what life is. Now, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We have waiting for us life in a way we can't even imagine in our present state. An eternity of knowing God, forever knowing him and knowing him and knowing him. That's what's waiting. So Jesus offers total forgiveness of sins, the negative removed, and eternal life, that positive given. That is the Christ section. So now we've got three of the four done. God, man, Christ. And I know you remember all of it because you're so sharp. I just can see it in your eyes. You remember all of these details. What you have to do is just go over these things in your mind and saturate yourself with them. You know these things. It's just a matter of putting them in order and maybe supporting it with some memory verses. Okay? Any questions about the outline of things we've covered tonight? Anything at all? All right, well, let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the things we've done tonight. Lord, for me, it's just been an incredible thrill to go over again the person and work of Jesus Christ. We thank you, O Lord, for his person. We thank you for the mystery of who he is that our Muslim friend on the plane could not fully grasp, but someday I pray he will. And Lord, I do pray for Zach. I pray that even now you'd open up his heart and mind. I thank you for the man and his, and his company who's been studying the Bible with him and trying to lead him to Christ. I pray that you give strength to that co-worker who's been witnessing to him now for a while. And I pray that Jeremy and I might have clicked some things into place uh, on that plane flight. Bring him to faith in Christ. I pray for this man. I thank you that he gave us uh, his business card and we can contact him, Lord. I just pray that someday he might come to faith in Christ. But Lord, he put his finger on that great mystery of the incarnation, the God-man. What a mystery. And we've talked about how Jesus was sinless and how he lived a miraculous life and how he died a substitutionary atoning death and how he was raised from the dead on the third day. We thank you that he offers to us full forgiveness of sins and eternal life in the presence of God life forevermore. We thank you for these gifts. And Lord, I pray that you give us a chance, give us a chance to share the gospel with somebody. Lord, I pray that this church would become more and more evangelistically fruitful. God, I pray that we would see more people saved. I pray that we'd see more people baptized and that each of these that are here would have an opportunity to disciple somebody, lead them to Christ and disciple them. God, give us fruit, I pray. 
I pray that we would not be plateaued or that the only people joining this church would be people who were saved years ago and, and have been attracted uh, to this ministry here and to the fellowship. Th- those, those things are wonderful, Lord, but we would also like to see people being converted. And so we pray that you would do that work. As it says in Acts 16.5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, that's good doctrine, and grew daily in numbers, that's good evangelism. Lord, help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.